of everyone out this evening, those of you visiting with us, you truly almost double our numbers, so thank you for that. We appreciate it very much. Uh, this is our Bible study session, and I've prepared uh, a few things. Please feel free to make comments, and uh, and this will be more of a topical lesson, not so much uh, verse-by-verse um, lesson that I put together. Uh, Spinning off of what Dave spoke of as he used us as the guinea pig trial run for what he's preaching on tonight up at university um, on Sunday evening. And speaking of, is it worth it to preach the gospel? Is it worth it to take that time and effort to plant seeds? And he, as Dave does, put together the pieces for us to see what our job is as seed sowers, not the ones that are actually creating the seed increase. We are not the ones that are able to create the process that when we cannot make a seed germinate. And uh, I've recently come in contact with a plant called an African tulip. Uh, one of my customers has one on their property. You may not be familiar with it. It's not widespread in Florida or the United States. Um, it comes out of South Africa. It's uh, a tree that can be up to 30 to 50 feet tall. It has a gorgeous orange, uh, almost a bowl-like bloom on it. And uh, has a large seed pod. And you feel free to Google it when you go home. Um, but long story short is, while we don't see it much here, in Australia, it's an invasive species. And... As the seeds spread, they actually have a 75% germination rate, which is extremely high for a plant. doesn't take much for it to occur. Uh, our soil, even as sandy as it is and everything, it, when it, the seed goes in, you literally three out of four times you're going to be hitting pay dirt. And with that being said, this thing can spread like wildfire. We don't have anything to say about whether or not one seed versus another is going to work. That's up to God. So while we don't hit Pater three out of four times, I think Dave showed us why it's a valiant effort for us to go out and do this. All that to say, I want us to look at the why factor of that, the why it is so important. And so, and one more side note to this that I'm going to incorporate through the lesson when we look at the amount of time, as we look back and Dave put out statistics from previous lessons and also that lesson on how things used to be, how our country was founded, the Judeo-Christian values in which built our Bill of Rights, that which was a foundational structure of, the found, of how America was founded, and we always tend to look back at history and say, well, things used to be better back then. Fifty years ago, more people believed in God. 75 years ago, you know, there was a time where 90%, 100% of Americans, it wasn't 100%, very close, were God-fearing people. And now, it's at an all-time low. Things are just so bad. And I think it's important for us to understand something. As time has changed through the different empires of the world, the speed in which these things occur is at a neck-breaking rate. If we look at the American Revolution as a whole, 
started 1776, July 4th, when the Declaration of Independence was agreed upon and signed, and then declared, actually read publicly in July 8th. It was only 1789 that we had our the Bill of Rights ratified. But that's still years upon years of time. Fast forward to today, and we're bombarded with news and things, but if we go back 24 months before the current administration is in place, regardless of the way that you vote, if we just simply look at the facts of the matter, of where things were projected to go and where they are now, if you had asked me three years ago at, at the age of 30, do you ever think that there's a possibility that Roe versus Wade could get overturned? I would have obviously shaken my head and said there's no way. Now there's actually a chance because of how things have changed over the past two years. Two years. So, as we look at the scriptures tonight, think about when things were written and what type of long game this is versus what type of things were bombarded with on a day-to-day atmosphere. Because the things that are going to happen today and tomorrow are going to be drastically different in two years, three years, four years, or 20 years. Dave's dad had a, had a saying, the 20-year rule. What's going to matter in 20 years? I think most importantly, as Dave talked about, planting seeds and watering those seeds, we need to think long game with the people around us. So let's open up our Bibles to Genesis in chapter 18. So, we're familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and what it represents. And as we look at where we are in the story at the moment, God is about to rain down judgment upon the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're beyond repair. There's nothing we can do about this. And as powerful as God is, rather than simply starting over in the Garden of Eden, he's showing what judgment looks like upon the wicked. So we begin in verse 20. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly great. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely accordingly to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you... Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? 
And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on the account of the 40. And he said, suppose the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I venture to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on the account of the 10. I think this is, we've studied this before, we've looked at it. But in the simplicity of the aspect of the lesson of why is it important for us to put the seeds down. And why should we not look at the individual souls that we encounter each and every day. We should not discard the what we have the opportunity to do. We should not discard the opportunity that we have to speak the gospel. Would you agree with that? If there's 10 people that you can come in contact in your entire lifetime, if we take a look at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, let's just think of Las Vegas and a couple million people in the city. It's nicknamed Sin City, right? So we go there. And we look at it, well, there's just no way that I can walk through casinos and hotels and the things that it has to deter people from God. The lustful things that, whether it be shiny gold cars or whether it be fleshly lust, do we look at it and not go, if there's an opportunity that 10 people might be saved, that 10 souls might hear the gospel, and at some point in time, because of that seed... They come to God. They decide to be obedient. Is that not an opportunity worth worth venturing to? We send people and we support preachers to go across the world to spread the gospel. And yet we have to understand how many people we're going to come in contact with in our lifetime. How many Facebook friends we have. And each one of those interactions that we have with those people on a daily basis. Whether it be someone in Publix a cashier, whether it be the people that we work with and we see daily. We have those opportunities to dump the seeds. I always thought it was fascinating when, in the parable in Luke, when the seed is falling out of the bag on different parts of the ground. It's as if he simply cuts a hole in his bag and just walks. We don't waste seeds. Farmers don't waste seeds like that. When you have a really good genetically engineered seed that you know is going to work for you, you're not just throwing it away. But we have to think we have the perfect seed with the gospel. We have the perfect truth in the word. And that parable, he simply has a hole in his bag the size that you can put your fist through. And, that, and the seeds are falling out all over the place. To the degree that only 25% are hitting the right type of soil. So we know if it's evenly dispersed, that's how it's happening. That's how I perceive. When I look at that parable... That's exactly what I'm seeing. We have to think about the 100% of people that we're going to come in contact with. And as Moses sees fit to not sin against God, he has the opportunity to speak directly to God as Abraham is speaking to him. He's doing so in a respectful fashion because he understands who God is. 
He's been given a promise, but he wants to still appeal on the account of the ten. Any comments, questions? I don't want it to be just me preaching for another 20 minutes. Feel free to interject if there's any thoughts or comments, please. I think at the end of the day, it shows the importance of the individual soul. It shows the importance of what God sees his creation to be. He's willing to allow the sin that has come and screamed at him to continue on the account of ten righteous. So we can't look around even the world we live today and think, this is, it just used to be better. We, you know, we're just never going to get back there again. We have those opportunities for the ten. And we need to actually, if we're more joyful about it, about our everyday lives, rather than always staring at the past, I think the people around us will see, how can you have such joy when we always talk about how things used to be? Why, is it, why do you think it's going to get better? There's plenty of blessings that we have in today's world. And there's more to come from God. And there's more to come after this world. So if we continue with that joy for the tent, rather than beating our heads against the brick wall because of all the sin, we have that opportunity with the people around us. If we look at Romans in chapter 6. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been freed from sin. You become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, So now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. We, again, if we look at the context of what Rome was, and we can maybe make the argument of what Rome still is, as far as a large city full of idolatry, full of sin, these individuals once were a part of that. And now we're not. And I don't know about you, but there was a point in time that I wasn't a Christian. There was a point in time that I wasn't saved. And then there was a point in time in which I had the opportunity to be obedient. And that's the way we should look at this. These individuals, as he says, you were were slaves to sin and impurity. Then you changed to become slaves of righteousness. Even though the people that we deal with, if we, it's easy for us to look at it in the global atmosphere of just putting a whole label on it. Of the world is sin. The world is full of people and souls. Sin inhabits that space. But those individuals still have. 
First of all, the right to know. Because we've been given this opportunity. We need to give it. We need to show those that we had this opportunity. We need to give it to everybody else. The opportunity to hear it. And the opportunity to respond to it. We... I spent my growing up in a denominationalist and as an Episcopal in high school, I always had inside of me, God exists. I'm raised that way. God exists. I know that's true. The Bible's the word of God. But as time went on, as I made the conscious decision to continue reading from in denominational hopping different congregations and churches and colleges, Learning a little bit more each and every day. And learning from Dave and reading the scriptures myself. If that if you're not you're not able to hear if some not someone isn't teaching it to you, right? So we have to understand it's connected, it's not mutually exclusive. If we're not the ones teaching people, who are they learning it from? Is there something that they are hearing that's worth learning? Or are they just being spoon-fed? And enjoy that. There's a, there are people that enjoy that. The simplicity of it. That somebody tells me this is what it is, they tell me I'm good. I'm going to continue on. They, they, they're in a robe, and they've got all the, the bling on. They must be right, right? And that's the way a lot of people feel. My grandmother was that way. All the way to the end. If the priest says that this is okay, he was ordained, that means something to me. Regardless of what does this say. And people will separate that in their mind. But if they're not hearing it ever from what the word is directly, and they're only listening to someone who is feeding them lies, they're not getting the food that is worth consuming. And into that, if we look at Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. In verse 7, we know Paul says, Hardly a, die would, a man would die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. But when we're the enemy of God, a sinner, Christ died for us. Are we walking and living in this life knowing and are we showing people that we have our life literally because someone died for us. You, we see movies, we see all thing, a lot of things through culture, and whether it be first responders or the military, those who are willing to literally die for an idea, 
of what they are doing and what they are accomplishing for the people that are behind that idea. Literally dying. We have to understand that that same feeling we may have with the freedom that we have in this country because of the blood that was shed by men, we can only enjoy because of the blood that was shed by Christ. But it's easy for us to just look at this and how far we are separated by time. Put ourselves in the apostles' shoes. Those who literally saw it happen in front of them. How did they walk? They literally were walking with the mentality and the fervor that the, a life was taken for them. And that only because of that life being taken and the resurrection that came with it, are they able to proceed and have a hope? And I think it's easy for us just to go about our daily lives and not have that, that passion behind it. As I, when I read that, when, as I studied and was reading for this right here, the thought of me walking, knowing that I'm able to stand here, is only because that thought is only able to happen because of literally someone died. A perfect man was killed in an cr extremely cruel fashion to allow me to do that, to allow me to be here. And I think it's important for us to reflect upon that, not just the first day of the week when we come to commune together and we partake in the emblems that we're commanded to partake. But if we wake up and if you're walking down the street and you're about to cross the street and someone pushes you out of the way and gets hit by a bus in your place, are you going to walk differently? Is that actually going to affect you? Of course it is. When I'm in the hospital and my children are born and that feeling of joy enters my life. You have to look at life beginning and life ending. As parents, what do we do for our children? What are we willing to do for our children? We need to live like that for everyone else because God adopted us. He wants to adopt them. He wants them to be in the family. We need to have that kind of passion that we would want to do for those individuals that are willing to sacrifice themselves. Well, we need to want to do it and live for Christ because he did that. In Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, and offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. willingly did it and he was the only one who could do it so we have to remember these things as we're walking we look at Acts 16 in verse 22 
crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off, and then and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Well, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison's doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them to get to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and his household. In the context of Rome at the time, so in this story here where that jailer had a certain part to him and you and I and so many people can relate to that because we'll read the scriptures and we'll understand them and through maybe someone's influence or good example we obey the truth just like this jailer did yet look at all the other people during this time that seeing all the miracles, I mean daily, that Jesus did for three years, and time after time after time, and look at the percentage of the people that had an open heart, a a heart, and obeyed the gospel. It simply amazes me that if you can see something that really shakes the world up, and you would think you would sit down and say, well, maybe this this man is God or the Christ. You know? Well, I think what happens, and you're, you're absolutely right, the jailer was humbled immediately. Was he humbled beforehand? No. This occurred, he didn't necessarily see God come and shake the place, but he woke up and the inner jail is open. He can't see it. And he, the first assumption, as anyone would assume, they're all gone. And I'm going to be tortured because of this. Probably my family as well. This is not today. This We have to think outside of the realm of, a, of our judicial system. Because if something like that happens to someone, regardless of back 2,000 years ago, if it was done to someone in another country 500 years ago, this kind of stuff is what leads to a lot of torture and Something that would be way worse than death. That's why he's willing to kill himself. So, he sees this, and it's immediately humbling to him. You clearly, as he's speaking to Paul and Silas, there's a reason you didn't leave. And I know why you're in here. I need to know this. As the Roman centurion said to Jesus, you don't need to come to my house even. I sent someone to you because I'm not worthy of being in your presence. 
Please just speak the word because I understand your power. Those types of instances, I think, are... Those are here specifically. We've all, we, we've all probably flown, gone through the airport. We all understand the security measures that are involved there, why we have them. And the saying of profiling saves lives. When I lived in the retail world, we had to almost beat that out of people to the degree of you don't know who's coming in your door to come to your store. You have to treat everyone who's walking in your door with the aspect that they came here for a reason. When my first invitation I ever did was I living in that world was it was based around conversion. Of 10 people walking in the door, the goal was only 2. But you can't get those 2 if you don't work on all 10. It doesn't work. You'll never hit your conversion rate. And that simplicity was, is right here in this. Who would ever think that Romans who are beating Christians and putting them in prison would ever be converted? What, what sense does that make? Yet, here we see it. And we have people, we know people, who probably have testimony similar to this. Who are addicted to drugs, sex, alcohol. Who spend their life in a trench, in an abyss, mentally. And then are able to be saved. We cannot look at individuals with a global aspect that because you're just in a sinful world and they're, the, the whole school's full of sin, the whole mall is full of sin. Everywhere we're going, these are just sinful people. They don't want 